Welcome to Healthcare Unfiltered. I'm your host, Shadi Nabhan. I'm a hematologist and a medical oncologist with interest in all aspects of healthcare delivery, treatment, leadership, mentorship, and policy. Today's podcast is with Dr. Robert Califf, the current FDA Commissioner of the United States. We are talking about a, a topic that is dear to my heart and your hearts, the accelerated approval regulatory pathway for the FDA. I think it goes without saying that this regulatory pathway gets a lot of criticism. Uh, there are proponents of the accelerate pathway. There are the naysayers of the, the accelerate pathway. Uh, however, it is probably fair to say that the accelerate pathway serves an important purpose, which is uh, providing faster access to drugs in patients in need. You know, the main criticism stems from the fact that uh, many folks would contend that in order to get a drug through the accelerate pathway, the company uh, uses surrogate endpoints that are not always clinically validated. And as one, uh, as one reporter once said, the FDA prioritizes speed over certainty. However, as I came to learn from reading a lot of articles and papers and from discussing this with Dr. Califf, this is never an easy decision. On one hand, you are faced with a very critical medical condition. Uh, there's not a lot of treatment options available, uh, and you are not really sure what to do. And certainly, you could make an argument, do I actually provide access to this drug or do I not? So as you will hear today, that these decisions are not easy, they are difficult, but ultimately, we make them with the best intentions to help patients in need. In addition to that, it's always easy to uh, say, you know, we should not really prescribe uh, this drug or that drug. But the reality is when you are the patient, when you are the family member uh, who is affected or your family member is the one affected, it becomes always more difficult and more challenging to prohibit the access to uh, this uh, drug. In an article I read that was written by reporter Jyoti uh, Madhusudnan uh, in Nature, she had interviewed a bioethicist, Holly Fernandez Lynch at the University of Pennsylvania, and that um, bioethicist stated, this is a very reasonable compromise, so long as we can get the confirmatory evidence quickly and reliably. And that's exactly why I wanted to speak with uh, Dr. Califf. I wanted really to ask as to how these surrogate endpoints are being utilized. Uh, what is really the dialogue between the FDA and the manufacturer? Uh, how do we really make sure that the confirmatory trials are done? And then what do we do when these confirmatory trials uh, demonstrate lack of efficacy? I came to learn that it is not as easy as one might think in terms of withdrawing drugs from the market. In fact, it could be very challenging and very difficult. And there's a case, I urge you to read an article written by Daniel Aaron as a viewpoint in JAMA, and it's titled, The FDA Struggle to Withdraw McKenna. Uh, this is really not an easy process. Now, recently in 2022, the US government enacted the Food and Drug Omnibus Reform Act, the Fedora, it aims to make the accelerated approval process more transparent and gives the FDA greater authority to ensure that drug makers complete confirmatory studies. So this is really a welcome uh, law that the FDA now is going to have a little bit more capability and ability to uh, really affirm the importance of these confirmatory trials to make sure that these are done properly on time in a very transparent manner. Look, folks, there's never always there's never an easy way to do things. There's always pros and cons to every process. Uh, but I hope that the discussion with Dr. Califf about the accelerated approval pathway sheds some lights, uh, some light into the FDA efforts to make sure that this pathway continues to thrive with the patient's interests at heart with the ability to make sure that we are providing to patients everything that they actually need in a very effective manner with a net positive. In anything that we do, in any prescription that we usually enact, there are always benefits and risks. 
there are usually uh, pluses and minuses. And as long as we are providing net positivity, so the benefit outweighs the harm, the advantages outweigh the disadvantages, then hopefully we are doing the right thing. I appreciate Dr. Califf's opinions. I appreciate his candor, uh, his uh, opinions as he provides to us his take about this. And he has said, we don't always get it right. Uh, we are humans and sometimes we get right, sometimes we don't. Our hope is that we are always providing net positive to our patients. This is a very important exclusive podcast episode on the accelerated approval pathway, specifically about where we go from here, what we have done, the history and next steps. And it's with the one and only Dr. Robert Califf, the current United States of America FDA commissioner. I appreciate taking the time. This is the second time we taped this uh, together. The first time we talked about drug shortages it was extremely informative. Uh, got a lot of feedback. Folks really appreciate uh, the information that you provided. So thank you for uh, giving us a, another uh, another podcast. You bet. It's my pleasure. We have to give just a quick one minute uh, background about the guest, although this is the second time, just uh, a little bit about um, your background. The reason I uh, this may be important is because you know, the FDA and you deal with everything, not just oncology. I'm a cancer specialist, but you deal with cardiology, oncology, rheumatology, everything, especially as you go with new therapies and accelerated approvals. So um, how big is your team? How do you rely on the other specialties that you may not be as familiar with as others and a little bit about your background uh, and, and how you got the job? Well, I'm, you know, I'm a cardiologist, but... Uh... Gosh, over 35 years as an intensivist with a big outpatient clinic. But the way I really got going was I, I came along just when we figured out what caused heart attacks. We got into treating a lot of patients in a very busy card, cardiac care unit. And it was pretty clear that we didn't know what to do exactly. So, And we had a lot of computer capabilities at Duke early on before most people did. So we became a big coordinating center to do clinical trials and figure out what was effective. Most things we tried didn't work, but some of them did, and they became very important, like thrombolytic therapy and then the use of stents and beta blockers and ACE inhibitors for uh, heart attacks, the various anticoagulants. We did clinical trials and all of those. And that led to a belief that every area of medicine should be using similar methods, and we developed a research institute that eventually dealt with 17 parts, 17 different institutes at the NIH, and everything from primary care to anesthesiology, um, and including oncology. Um, the American College of Surgeons Oncology Group was located at the, our clinical research institute. So all that work um, led to a lot of interaction with FDA, and I think that's what led to my being offered the job to come and join FDA originally in 2015 um, as a civil servant for the first year. And then President Obama asked me to be commissioner. And then this time around, President Biden asked again. So here I am again. I'm going to assume there are days in your life where you regret that position. <laughs> it, well, I... You know, I've always been someone who loved to absorb information, and yeah. it's definitely the case here because, I mean, you mentioned it, there are uh, 18,000 people that work at the FDA now, and yeah. remember that medical products is only half of what we do. The F in FDA stands for food, and, you know, the most undersold part of FDA is the Center for Veterinary Medicine. You think about precision oncology in people. Imagine precision medicine for 3,000 species, ranging from giraffes to fruit flies. So um, we have um, a very broad spectrum to deal with. And of course, we're part of uh, Health and Human Services, which is the entire public health apparatus of the U.S. government. So I interact a lot with NIH. We've got one of your fellow oncologists, Dr. Bartinoli, now as the head of the NIH. Yeah. Very exciting. Um, a lot of work with CDC. So I'm very dependent on other people, but I always have been because I've done 
in intensive care, it's all about the team, right? The team has to work together and you have to develop trust and reliability across the team. And in clinical global clinical trials, you're dealing with multiple countries and hundreds of research sites. So um, I highly value the capabilities of colleagues. And what could be better than uh, Dr. Pazder in oncology leading the um, FDA oncology branch? And that is a really super group of people. Well, I absolutely um, think that you, you know, um, the FDA deals with um, a lot of things. And, and as you said earlier, sometimes it's just impossible to, to please everyone because there's always um, folks that will contend any decision that you make and just the name of the game. With all of the work that you're doing, I hope you get some some time to uh, to rest at the end of the year. We're taping this towards the end of 2023. We're going to air it uh, early January. So I certainly uh, hope you'll you'll get some rest, but not before we finish this podcast, we, which is <laughs> a topic that's really gets a lot of attention. Um, the accelerated approval pathway of the FDA. Um, and, and we'll go into some of the controversies and some of why folks, uh, you know, you have some naysayers to the accelerated pathways and you have some big supports, but, but maybe it's a good idea to start a little bit of a, of a background um, to the extent you'd like to share, you know, when did this start and why did it start this accelerated approval pathway from a regulatory stand standpoint for the FDA? Or, you know, there's been a tension throughout history in this question of access to treatments that might be effective versus proof that the treatments are effective. And so I think the big moments um, in the U.S. were, first of all, 1962, the Kefauver-Harris Amendment to the Food, Drug, and Cosmetics Act, which came about because of thalidomide. And that was the um, part of the law that set the requirement that you had to prove that a drug uh, was effective. Before that time, if doctors said it was good, it was, a, it was assumed to be effective, which you know, among many other things, doctors were promoting different brands of cigarettes at the time. Yeah. And so uh, thalidomide really made the point that you've got to understand the risks and benefits of um, a drug. Then later, uh, the Dalcon Shield happened with devices, and we ended up with uh, similar but not identical regulations related to devices. But then AIDS, HIV, AIDS uh, hit us, and um, many, many people were dying. It was a very activist community. Tony Fauci was very involved, as many people know. And um, it would have taken a long time to measure the outcomes with the treatments that were available. And so the idea of using um, biomarkers or um, preliminary surrogate endpoints became a key part of the law. So that was, you know, 1990s. And the idea is um, if there's a disease that is life-threatening for which there's not an effective treatment, it's sort of in the American psyche and culture to want earlier access and take greater risk in that situation. And so Congress acted on what people wanted by passing laws that put these various accelerated pathways into effect. And they're, you know, they're depending on how you count it, four or so different pathways. But they all have in common the idea that you would accept um, evidence which leads to reasonable likelihood that the benefits outweigh the risk, most often using either, for the most part, using, I call them biomarkers or unvalidated surrogates. Because if there's a surrogate, let's say, for example, um, LDL cholesterol or systolic blood pressure, that's validated, then that actually leads to full approval if you make it on the surrogate. And so um, accelerated pathways are put a lot of trust in the FDA employees or full-time civil servants. Remember that I'm a, I'm a political appointee, so I don't uh, make decisions about approval of drugs or devices. That's done by full-time civil servants because they have to weigh the evidence where the standard is high for the evidence that you have, but it's not the same as clinical outcome evidence. And over the years, a number of amendments have been made to the fundamental legislation. And 
Well, the last point I want to make about this is I think it's best to think of the FDA as it relates to medical products. We are referees. In other words, we have to make decisions on the playing field uh, as it's happening. And we have a rule book that we go by, which is something that's a set of laws that are passed by the U.S. Congress. Um, we don't make the rules. Um, but like any good uh, set of referees, given the basic rule book, we do have a role to play in terms of interpreting um, the tough cases in between where the rules are not specific. And of course, we have input um, uh, to Congress, um, so-called technical assistance, when they are making the rule book. But basically, we're referees. We are not the um, the accelerated approval is not something the FDA created. It's a it's based on a set of laws that were created by a process between voters, advocacy groups, with input from FDA. But the idea was pretty much is let's try to provide faster access to drugs in a in scenarios where probably there's there are not a lot of options i mean just conceptually right. life threatening diseases for which there's no known effective treatment so so if like if i'm thinking are there of requirements uh if i'm applying if i'm a company want to apply with a drug for accelerated approval are there like one two three four i need to check the box what, what are these requirements it i need to it's basically um, uh, basically what I said. You have to have a life-threatening yeah. condition. There has to not be a clearly effective um, treatment. Um, and, you know, there are a few other things, you know, or does it fit into other pathways like orphan drugs or um, mm -hmm. other categories? But it's, it's relatively straightforward. But like an example that, um, you know, makes it complicated is you have a common disease like a one, let's say lung cancer, as uh, oncology is getting better at segmenting different subpopulations, one can make the case that there might be categories of lung cancer that fit in, even after there's a general treatment that's good, there may be specific situations where it qualifies. That's where, again, the judgment of the FDA um, becomes very important. You mentioned the surrogate endpoints, and I think it's probably an understatement to say that this is probably the most contentious part of, uh, not I can't say the most, was one of the very contentious parts of as you look at certain things. And and Dr. Kell, if you mentioned it's unvalidated, which, which I appreciate because that's usually the contentious piece. I can honestly, if I was on a debate stage, I can argue pro and con surrogate endpoints. Um, uh, as we all know, because in, like in anything, there's always the pluses and minuses. I think the biggest criticism that I hear is is exactly what you said, that these are not validated. So when you get a surrogate endpoint, let's say response rate in a cancer drug or progression-free survival, that this may not always really translate into true clinical benefit that matters to patients. So so how, like, how do we resolve this issue? Um, uh, in terms of the surrogate endpoints that are being used? Are there specific surrogate endpoints you think should be used more than others? Like, what do we do with this problem? You know, the law says reasonable, reasonably likely, um, and that's in the judgment of full-time civil servants who have no financial interest in the outcome, but obviously we all care about, um, about patients. Um, and I, you know, I, in one phase of my career, I spent a lot of time on decision analysis and patient preferences. And you know, when you're feeling fine and you're and you're um, making a statement about what criteria should be, and you're not affected by the disease, often you feel very differently than you do if you actually have the disease. Hundred percent. You're seriously ill. So um, I think people that have the disease and families have spoken and Congress has acted. So if we want to change it, um, Congress will have to pass laws. And frankly, I think um, with, with the exception of a couple of things that were recently tweaked, I think the public has been pretty good with um, the way it currently works. Now, we are referees. And, you know, I just finished a week of watching a lot of football and basketball. Referees don't always make the right call. Yeah. And 
there is more uncertainty in an accelerated approval because um, an unvalidated um, surrogate may or may not end up working out in the long run, and, and there's judgment involved. So I'm not saying the FDA always gets it right, but um, I think the current set point, um, at least in my view, is 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 pretty good. And since everything that we do is public and um, it's amenable to study by experts who want to analyze it and maybe suggest changes in the rule book. You know, uh, I saw a lot of charge block calls in basketball over the last week. And uh, when you begin to see a lot of calls that are going on one side or the other, then the um, officials and the, and, the, and the leaders take a look at it and the coaches and say, maybe we need to make an adjustment here for this. That's always going to be the case. You know, I appreciate you mentioning that it's much easier to opine on something when you are not affected yourself or your family members. It reminds me um, of addressing code status. I mean, obviously, it is much easier to 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 withhold therapy and say we're done with treatment when it's not really you or your relative or your loved ones when when it's you or somebody else, it's really more challenging. It's just the human nature and just the way it is. Oh, yeah. I, you know, I once participated uh, in a clinical trial called the support trial where we took people who were within six months of end of life and randomized the intensive care units, either getting very um, detailed information from um, nurse practitioners who were specially trained to sort of break the news about what it meant to um, be resuscitated or not resuscitated. The view of a lot of people going into it was you have all these people who don't really know and they they don't uh, agree to DNR status because they just didn't have the facts, which are, you know, the odds are against you in that situation, as you well know. But when we did the randomized trial, it turned out it didn't change anything. <laughs> when people, uh, yeah. a lot of people, even if you say the odds are against you, they say, well, maybe I'll be that one. And so the, these things are complicated. We don't always get it right. Um, our calls are not always right. But I, I think the American people, by and large, if they're critically ill with no effective treatment, would like to take more supervised risks than waiting on um, all the studies to get done. And I think the supervised risk that you are referring to, if I, if I may, and correct me if I'm wrong, is the post-marketing confirmatory trials you know these are you know there is in the law there is that you know if you if we grant you accelerated approval then you must conduct confirmatory trials so we could be convinced that there is true benefit um, there's a lot to unpack here um, i guess number one is the fda involved back and forth with the manufacturer in the design of the confirmatory trial uh, do you have a say into it where you say, okay, this is the type of study that you need to do for us to grant you the full approval, or is this they just do the trial and submit? Is there a dialogue? Oh, no, there's a lot of back and forth. And yeah, I think one of the things that it, it frustrates me sometimes that we don't haven't gotten the message across to a lot of people about is throughout the entire process of drug development, there's a lot of back and forth. You know, a lot of people have commented, well, now if you look at applications, the vast majority are approved, those that apply for um, approval. But what's not said is that 90% of drugs that are entered into phase one never make it to market because they drop out of the race well before anyone would submit a final application. So in all that back and forth during drug development, most things fail. Um, it's a big advantage, uh, advance, I think, to... Um, have earlier failures so that you don't end up with people put on experimental protocols for drugs that aren't going to work anyway. And you don't have manufacturers spending a fortune on late-stage clinical trials and applications that aren't going to succeed. So there's a lot of interaction. And a big part of the interaction that occurs as you get ready for that final submission is a discussion on what should the follow-up trial be. And that will continue until the protocol is set. So, yes, the FDA has a lot of input into that. And then the confirmatory trial is done, and there are one of two possibilities. One possibility is it confirms the clinical benefit. The other possibility, it doesn't. 
if it does it's an easy thing obviously you know you get the full approval and everybody is happy and you pleased everyone i think the problem is if it doesn't and i was reading in preparation for this several articles on this it's not easy for you guys to withdraw the drug from the market it is i mean i was i was um I was reading an article uh, written by um, Daniel Aaron, who is a, a lawyer at Harvard, and he wrote an editorial um, in JAMA on uh, the FDA struggle to withdraw McKenna. And I was really, um, I felt bad <laughs> because in preparation, I mean, there was a lot back and forth. You had to prepare 241 documents, hearing three days, and and despite all of the votes in favor of withdrawing, the manufacturer still appealed and it's going to court. And I mean, that's not an easy task. All, you know, I mean, uh, tell me but, about this. I mean, how 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 challenging is this? Thanks for acknowledging uh, this, but, but it's not limited to this. Um, we live in a country where uh, we believe that people have a right to um, appeal decisions that are made by the government. And so... Let's just take vaping products that we um, come across in international ports. Every time we confiscate a product, we have to go to court. Um, and we only have a certain number of lawyers. And it's very time-consuming, and we have a limited budget. So the, the stress of this is significant. What I will also add, though, is in the most recent update to our laws, this was an adjustment of the rules. We got more authority now to... Uh, remove a product if um, if we think it's the right thing to do. But I should also point out, uh, you know, I only wish that it was always a binary clear yes or no confirmatory trial. There are results which are in a gray zone. Let's say it seems to work in one subgroup but not another. Um, there are times when the trials don't get finished. And, um, you know, having been a trialist for most of my career myself, you know, in theory, you say, well, you just do a confirmatory trial. But let's say you had a child with a disease that was uniformly fatal and you had an accelerated approval. Would you want that child to go into a placebo-controlled trial with um, survival as the outcome? Th these things are not easy. So it's something that we need to continue to work on and figure out the best methods. But... Um, there are a lot of results in between definitively yes and definitively no. I think the the uh, a lot of folks would, would I mean the the argument is always that um, psychologically you always want to go into the actual treatment. The, the problem is we can't guarantee that the treatment doesn't cause harm. You know, essentially we're hoping for a clinical benefit, but realistically uh, we have to agree that. Um, Similarly, there could be harm more than benefit because we don't know. Yeah, I, I mean, the way I think about it is for sure um, worse than a treatment that doesn't work is having and, and knowing it is promising a person that the treatment will have benefit when it actually doesn't. So these things, I, I think in these kinds of situations, you know, it's very different. I'm a cardiologist who dealt mostly with um, coronary disease and heart failure where we have a bunch of effective treatments already so we're always offering the patient something but in these situations it's it's tougher and i don't i'm actually not uncomfortable about the arguments that go on because i don't think we know exactly the right answer i think as i say i think we have a good rule book right now but we'll have to keep adjusting it as we learn i mean one of the in one of the articles i read they were saying that the median time to withdrawal from the time that the company might have a negative conversion trial is four years. That was one of the articles uh, I read, and that seems astonishingly too long because during those four years, many patients could continue receiving that treatment that may be ineffective or potentially harmful. Yeah, I think the point's well taken. That's why we were so much in favor of the adjustment in the law that gives us more authority uh, when this situation comes up. But, you know, you you saw with McKenna and we're seeing it with menthol cigarettes right now, there are surprising numbers of people who will defend these situations and feel very adamant about it, that, um, that the FDA has it wrong and they have knowledge that um, should supersede the FDA. So 
um, we live in a we live in a tough environment, but we signed up for the job. And Dr. Kalef, when we talk about the adjustment of the law, that's a good segue for some of the legislative changes. Um, are you referring to the FDA, um, the Food and Drug uh, Omnibus Reform Act, the Fedora? Um, that was uh, maybe that's an opportunity to ex- explain what that is to viewers and listeners because um, it's it's good to have more authority and kind of uh, arm to uh, to enforce some of well, those things. You know, every five years we have user fees that um, are agreed to between the FDA and the industry. Um, just philosophically, I wish we didn't have user fees. I wish the taxpayer footed the bill and we um, only reported to the taxpayer. But that's not the way it works. And um, the user fees are actually adjudicated by a congressional act. Uh, the patient advocacy groups have a say. The public health groups have a say. And along with the user fees, there are all sorts of adjustments, tweaks made to the law that governs um, FDA activities. And so, but even beyond that, throughout the course of the year, there are opportunities to put an adjustment in that's helpful. So very recently, we've gotten this um, additional um, authority to um, go ahead and withdraw drugs that are proven to be ineffective or where the company doesn't get the trial done and uh, more explicit authority to make sure that the right trial designs are done. And that won't be the last adjustment. We'll keep learning. Like you said, there's always the courts that (laughs) everybody could take anything to the court. Um, So um, if, if the company refuses to abide, you only have the legislation, right? You just basically, if it's, keeps the contention continues there's only the operators to just resolve this in courts i mean that's how it works uh, well i'm very worried about that right now so um up until the last couple of years what i would say is yes they always have the right to appeal to the courts but <clears throat> traditionally the courts um yield to the fda as a science-based agency judges are obviously not scientists and not um, trained to adjudicate clinical outcome data or biomarker data to make these kinds of decisions. So usually it's only a matter of the FDA violated a procedure. It's a sort of a technical issue. But recently, um, more judges have stepped in and, I don't know, acted like they were FDA. And I'm worried about that because if we end up with every decision of FDA ending up with a judge potentially overruling the FDA, this is would be extremely disruptive to the entire system. We'll go back a little bit to the surrogate endpoints uh, because I have a couple of questions I forgot to ask. But but one of the things that um, that are important is, I mean, obviously, the FDA is a United States agency. So you don't have jurisdiction technically over what the company would do outside of the USA. Uh, needless to say, though, um, our decisions here does do affect, to an extent, some of the decisions that occur outside of the USA. Um, and one of the examples is there are certain drugs like uh, atezolizumab that was withdrawn uh, from the market here in the US uh, for bladder cancer, but was continued for, for, for breast cancer, but was continued to use globally in India and on other locations. Um, and the manufacturer was contending that they just go by the authorities in the local communities. And somehow the local community in India was continuing to use this drug. What are your thoughts when when we actually have a negative confirmatory trial here that shows conclusively there is no benefit, but the drug continues to be used in non-US countries? I, I recognize you can't force the non-use, but it's, it seems, I don't know, I was disturbed when I read that. Well, it, I think you should be disturbed, and it's disturbing, but we also have to accept that we have countries for a reason with um, jurisdiction of their own affairs. And so, you know, I think we can all envision a day when um, drug and device development um, is done in a transparent way around the world that leads to data sets that can reside in the cloud that academic journals, academicians, and regulatory agencies can access the data according to a set of rules, very much 
in in the cloud environment. It's made for that. And so you could have, let's say, the Indian authorities and the US FDA looking at the same data set. But we may make different decisions because our cultural values may differ and our settings of clinical care may differ. I mean, the, the other problem is that you end up almost mandating to have trials in every country because, I mean, I'm a firm believer that there is a environmental factors, occupational factors. There are certain elements that maybe the disease could be different between two countries. Maybe I can't prove it. But if you open that Pandora's box, then you're almost needing to have a study in Asia, a study in Europe, study in the U.S., and that's impossible. Well, before you say it's impossible, I, I, <laughs> I don't I don't necessarily agree because even though the disease may be essentially, I mean, let's just take the disease I'm most expert in, coronary disease, and let's look at India. If you look at India, there um, is a big population of people with very few risk factors and who are thin, but who have very diffuse coronary disease. And, um, you know, we're learning more about what's involved in that. But it's also the case, if we take something like a coronary stent, there was a time in India where the cost of a surgery was less than the cost of putting in a coronary stent. And so you end up with these interactions of the clinical care system that become important. And I, um, you know, when we look at it from a U.S. perspective, we're constantly focused on diversity of clinical trials, right? And we want a representative U.S. population. But put yourself in India or Singapore, where we started a medical school. Would you want all the drugs to be developed in the U.S. with U.S. patients? And then we just assume that's going to work in India or Singapore. So I, I would argue that over time, we need to develop a distributed clinical trial system that's global. Um, and, and we need to learn using um, advanced statistical techniques and methods of reducing the cost of clinical trials to get larger sample sizes. I mean, after all, when you think about precision medicine, precision medicine is built on a comparison of you as an individual with a population to see how you fit in with regard to how you might respond to an intervention. So you need a population that represents something akin to you in order to draw that extrapolation. But that, yeah, you know, those those are further, just further thoughts. So um, one of the things in cancer that we usually go by is the NCCN, the National Comprehensive Cancer Network Guidelines. And um, oftentimes uh, it's much easier to put things on the guidelines than taking them out. And this has been actually proven by evidence. A couple of people have written about it that, you know, get a drug in the X-ray approval and it gets on the guidelines, you lose the approval. It's so difficult to actually take them out, so difficult to change the prescribing patterns. What's the intersection between the FDA and the NCCN if this happens? Is there an actual dialogue or is this? Uh... Well, th this is where I think um, in the U.S. Uh, cancer is privileged in a way by having Dr. Pastor leading this really astute. I mean, if you go to the grand rounds at the FDA, uh, no offense to any academic centers out there, but I would say it's better than most academic centers in terms of the intellectual content and there's a lot of interaction with the guidelines and and so I think it I think it is productive but there's still a lot of work to do I mean remember there are a lot of generic drugs uh, cancer drugs where the guidelines aren't even represented in the label of the drug because the label was written for a previous time and I know um, Dr. Pastor has a code name for every project there's one on this topic in most areas of medicine, this just doesn't exist. We're working right now in the area of stimulants for ADHD. There aren't, there aren't actually aren't even any uh, guidelines for adults, and that's where the biggest increase in prescribing is occurring. So this brings to mind something I wanted to say about the follow-up studies. I think the very most important thing right now is we need across the board in the U.S. to revamp our post-market evidence generation system. And most of that is not in FDA's lane. We have a role to play, for example, with these accelerated approval drugs. But there's so many questions left on the table after FDA approval. Um, it's interesting, today, across my email came a study from Friends of Cancer Research showing that, indeed, the dose of the oncology drugs needs to be adjusted after 
approval as more studies are done. But right now, we don't have a highly efficient or effective post-market evidence generation system, yet we all have, if we're patients, we have something at stake in getting these answers like, what is the right dose? How long should we give the treatment? Um, how do the treatments compare? The comparative effectiveness question. What's the value of the treatment? And of course, now with the IRA, CMS has a major interest that didn't exist before in getting the answers to these questions as they go to evaluate how to negotiate price. Um, but again, this is not FDA's primary area. We have a role to play. But now with a new NIH director who's an expert in clinical trials and the changes in CMS, this would be a chance for us all uh, to work together. I, you and I were talking, I have a relative with pancreatic cancer right now. The question is, should you get your adjuvant, your chemotherapy before or after the operation? That's a pretty big question. There's not been a clinical trial on it. Yeah. That's a shame. But, but could the FDA be more picky with the surrogate endpoints, Dr. Kelf? I mean, there's a, you know, a recent example is the uh, Alzheimer's drug, the um, aducinumab, um, and there is so much, I can, you know, thousands of articles probably written about this in terms of, I mean, we, I think, wouldn't that be within your jurisdiction in terms of saying, look, this surrogate endpoint, we're not going to take because we just don't think it's really clinically meaningful. Um, is this something that you could possibly look into? We look into it all the time. And there, um, you know who, but there are a lot of people that are constantly analyzing the decisions that we make. Unfortunately, one part of it that I wish could change, when we say, no, we're not going to consider um, this surrogate, often the company goes out of business and there is no record. There is no, it's a, it's a proprietary confidential interaction that occurs by law. It's not that we want it to be that way. That's what the law tells us we have to do. So you don't have a record of all the things that we turn down. I'm not talking about turning down once the clinical trial is done, because with clinicaltrials.gov, you've got to register your clinical trial. I'm talking about in the development process, a company comes in and says, serum porcelain is a great biomarker for our disease. And we say, no, it's not. So we're not going to consider um, that as a valid approach. There is no revel. That's a proprietary interaction between FDA and a company that's guided by U.S. law. So we do that all the time. And, you know, again, you can disagree with the call that we made. Was it a charge or was it a block? Was the player offsides or not? That's a big one that happened last week. Um, we don't always get it right. And we uh, within the FDA, you'll find different opinions. But we are vested with a responsibility. I used to run intensive care units. I had to make decisions every day about critically ill people where you couldn't wait for everything to get in place. You had to make your best judgment. And that's something we have to live with. I forgot, maybe last year I was... Uh, I was um asked to debate uh, for one of the journals to debate something about accelerated approval to think a little bit provocatively. So I'm going to give you a thought uh, just, uh, and I don't know if we're pressed on time, but this will take just a few minutes. Um, because one of the things I was thinking about is let's say you get the accelerated approval and let's theoretically say there's five years between accelerated approval and the confirmatory trial. And I'm going to just throw theoretically uh, my company made $1 billion a year in total sales for these five years. So I made five billions in sales. And then the confirmatory trial is negative. Why can't I, because it's negative, pay back the U.S. government, I don't know, 20%, 25%, like a pre-negotiated rate, because technically I generated so much revenue for a drug that eventually proved not clinically helpful, don't I owe the taxpayers or somebody? It was a thought experiment I was thinking about, and um, I don't know. Is this crazy thing to 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 even consider? I, I don't think it's crazy. I think there's some pr real practical issues with that particular proposal. But um, you know, a similar proposal would be that the price of the drug be less during that mm -hmm. period when you're not sure, when you're doing the confirmatory right. trial. Um, 
I, I personally think that's a good idea. There are many people that think it's a terrible idea. But again, that's not the FDA's call. We don't have anything to do with the pricing of medical products. That's a responsibility of the other part of the system. Someone may ask us what we think for technical assistance, but it's not something that we can decide or we're actually prohibited from considering price in our decisions. Can you share with viewers or listeners like some of the success stories of the accelerated approval? Like, you know, I mean, as, as you look back, um, something that, you know, they can look back and say, this actually did help patients. Well, it starts with the original HIV drugs, which were approved um, based on, um, you know, viral load biomarkers before they were fully confirmed. Um, and then you go to Gleevec. That's a pretty good one. Um, would it have been a good thing to wait an extra two or three years, which has been no. said to be the, I had a personal experience. I was sitting right at this desk. My mom had multiple myeloma. She had been through several treatment courses, and her oncologist called and said, we tried everything. It's time for hospice. And, you know, she was in her 80s at the time, and I said, well, she's had a good life. I understand. Let me just call Dr. Pazder and see if there's anything new. And he said, that's amazing that you called because we just approved daratumumab for refractory multiple myeloma based on for accelerated approval based on a single arm trial. And it looks pretty good. So um, my mom tried it. She got an extra three or four years of a pretty good life after that. So I'm not saying that to say that that means that I think every decision that we make or every accelerated approval is good. But um I do have a little personal experience here. To come back um, to this post-market phase, I mean, another factor that I think is very important is where is the clinical community in this? In other words, if the treatment's unproven, you know, there ought to be um, cognizance of that in the clinical community, and there should be a real commitment to get the follow-up trials done. I just had a... Uh, a few months ago, I had an interesting experience with AHIP, the uh, insurance plans of America, where they were on my case. Why doesn't the FDA get these follow-up trials done? And my question was, what are you doing to get the follow-up trials done? The, the biggest thing I hear from clinicians is they're under constant pressure to see more patients in less time, and they don't have time to participate in the trials. What if the insurance industry got behind this and made it easier for clinicians to participate with their patients in, uh, in clinical trials and put pressure on the companies. The clinicians should do that um, to get the evidence. And then if the evidence is positive, then, and the treatment really works, let's make sure people get it. It is if much it easier. Let's much, stop it. Much easier to point fingers and uh, much more difficult to find solutions and be proactive about it. What's uh, what, what's next? I mean, uh, we talked about the legislative process, the new laws where you have more arms. If we're having this conversation, you know, two, three years from now, um, where do you see this conversation would be going? Are you optimistic? Some of the changes? I guess if I give you, if you had all the power in the world to make changes, what are these changes you'll make? And and I don't know, whatever whatever you think the future holds for the accelerated approval pathway. Okay, I know we're short on time, so I'll be brief here. And what I'll say is um, the most, I'm always optimistic. I mean, there's always more that we can do. I would say the FDA is the least of our problems. Everywhere I go in the world, people envy the innovation of the American system, the fact that we're constantly generating the ideas and products themselves and drugs, devices, biologics. <clears throat> we're number one in the world in this. We're in the top position, but our implementation of, of these products and our post-market evidence generation system, we're spending $4.3 trillion for the worst longevity of any high-income country. And so we've got to fix this post-market system. And in the ideal world, we would use the power of our 340 million electronic health records to constantly surveil clinical practice and embed randomized trials at a very low cost where it would give us the evidence we need in the post-market phase 
And we would really emphasize giving the treatments that are effective and get rid of the things that are ineffective as a way of doing healthcare. And we're very far from that now. But I also want to point out the most exciting scientific area where I have no idea how we're going to deal with it, but it's going to be really interesting to work it out. You know, gene editing, we had our first approval for sickle cell disease of um, CRISPR-Cas9 gene editing. This is only the beginning. And for rare genetic diseases where you have a tiny population, you know, what should the evidence level be in those situations? How do we get the trials done? How do we bring in the global population? Because if it's rare in the 340 million people like the U.S., if we had all 8 billion people, you know, so I think areas like that, both the science of how do we um, understand off-target effects of gene editing, how do we segment populations, and then how do we get trials done and assess the evidence, that's the biggest other new thing besides fixing the post-market system. Thank you so much for actually taking time of your busy schedule. Really appreciate it. Wish you a beautiful holiday season, and I wish you a relative uh, speedy recovery. We will stay optimistic. Thanks very much. Take care. Folks, thank you so much for listening. Thank you for your support to the Healthcare Unfiltered podcast. Do not forget to let me know how you think I'm doing and what I could do better, especially in 2024, as you continue to listen to the Healthcare Unfiltered podcast. You can watch all of these podcast episodes on my YouTube channel, Chadi Nabhan and Healthcare Unfiltered, and or on my website, chadinabhan.com. Do not forget to subscribe to the show, rate it, and let your friends and colleagues know about Healthcare Unfiltered. This will go way long in making sure that everybody is aware of this healthcare podcast. If you are in the mood to read a book, don't forget to check out Toxic Exposure, the true story behind the Monsanto trials and the search for justice. My second book, by the way, which I'll make an announcement about, is coming in the fall of 2024. So you have to stay tuned and to listen to this podcast so you can know more about my second book. Of course, it's going to be about cancer and oncology, and it is coming towards the end of 2024. I cannot thank Dr. Robert Califf enough for giving me this opportunity to discuss a very difficult topic, the Accelerate Approval Pathway. I hope you benefited from this conversation. I hope you got more insight into what goes behind the scenes to make things happen about in the accelerated approval pathway. Before I let you go, I'm going to leave you with one of my favorite sayings about leadership. A leader is one who knows the way, goes the way, and shows the way. Until next time, take care.